Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living. Great to see you this morning. Hey, help me do something. Would you turn to someone, just wave at them and smile at them. Would you do that? Give them a smile. Give them a smile. Oh, we need that, don't we? Man, we need smiles. I, I, the one thing I, I can't do, I try to do it with my cheekbones. I got big cheekbones. I got big everything up here. But I, I, got, I love to look at people. I try to help them see my smiles. And so that's one of the things that's tough to do right now. I saw a lady a day or two ago that she had a great big mouth on her mask and big old lips. And she was, and I thought, hey, at least I, even if she's not happy, she looks like she is. So I just think that's kind of cool. And we're glad that you're helping us smile to folks this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn to Luke chapter 15, going to continue in a series called Tell Me a Story. It's a study of the parables of Jesus. There are over 40 of them, depending on which you account as, a, as one parable or maybe three parables, or some people don't count certain ones as a parable, but roughly between 40 and 45 parables of Jesus. A, a good third of them have to do with the return of Christ and the judgment of Christ. And so next week we're going to spend some time uh, taking a look at the parable of the ten virgins. And a good third of them have to do with Pharisees. And they are specifically trying to speak and communicate and challenge Pharisees within Jesus' day. And so we're uh, looking at that a little bit today as well. I don't know how many of you ever play games on your phone. Any, any of you ever do that? Some of you do? Candy, what's the one you do? Candy Crush? Is that the one? Man, it is a constant Candy Crush. She, she gets into the Candy Crush thing, and, and she, she sometimes plays on her tablet, sometimes on her phone. Um, how many of you ever played the game Angry Birds, or at least you heard of it? You know what I'm talking about? Have you heard of Angry Birds? Yeah, somebody, yeah, the Angry Birds. It's the, it's, now, this one was one of the first games that I remember, and I did actually play it a little bit. Uh, it's kind of an interesting game. The, the whole premise is that these birds are angry at pigs. They hate the pigs. I don't know why. There's probably a story behind it. But they hate the pigs, and so they try to destroy the pigs. And when they try to destroy the pigs, many times you end up destroying yourself. And Man, there have been multiple versions of this thing have come out. A, a movie, 2016, the Angry Birds movie. And, and uh, Well, today I want to talk to you about angry birds. I want to talk to you about angry Christians. And, uh, if you, and, and this story does a wonderful job of helping us to see what Jesus is talking about when he deals with this whole thing of angry faith. Now, you wouldn't normally think that when you go to, to chapter 15 of Luke, because for those of you who have kind of been around for a while, you'll recognize Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son, prodigal child. But it actually are three mini parables that turn into one big parable as Jesus is trying to communicate. And one of the things he wants to communicate is about this whole thing of angry faith. And he has a couple of audiences that he's speaking to. Now specifically today we're going to focus in on Matthew chapter 15 verse 25. But in Matthew chapter 15, verse 25, this parable has been used to draw many home into a relationship with the Lord. It has been a parable of encouragement to many parents, uh, whether it be your child or whether it be a sibling or whether it be a spouse or whether it be a parent or a grandparent who have been far from the Lord. The parable of the prodigal has been an encouraging parable to draw people home in their relationship with the Lord. But before that ever got into the story of the prodigal, 
Jesus set the stage. And so I'm going to do that for you today. Even though we're going to focus in, verse 25 on, I need to set the table for you this morning a little bit. If you get into Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, you'll see that once again, tax collectors and sinners were all, and sinners is in quotations, it's just a name for those who are not followers of the Lord. It says, tax collectors and sinners were gathered around him, Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, if you haven't figured it out by now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the angry birds, right? They, 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 they can't stand the sinners, and they're just angry. And it's interesting how Jesus begins to deal with two audiences. He deals with those that are sinners, and he deals with those who are stubborn, Pharisees and tax collectors. And he begins by talking about God's heart for lost things. Now, if you have your Bibles and you just kind of move down through here, you'll see that Jesus goes into a discussion, and it really is as if Jesus is just simply setting the stage, and he says, hey, those of you who have sheep, if you had a hundred sheep and one of those sheep wandered away, wouldn't you go after that sheep? And, of course, everybody would have said, yes. And he said, and oh, by the way, if you go after and you find that one sheep, wouldn't you be excited about finding the lost sheep? And you would rejoice with others that you found the lost sheep? And then he just moves on. He said, hey, ladies, how many of you, if you lost a coin, now you might have 10 coins, but if you lost one coin, wouldn't you search for that lost coin? It's not like you'd say, oh, I got nine out of 10, not bad. No, you'd search for that lost coin. And wouldn't you get excited about finding the lost coin? Wouldn't you say, rejoice with me to your neighbors? I can imagine everybody sitting there in the audience was going, yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, sure, I could, I could, I could see myself doing that. And yeah, of course I would care about the sheep, even though I got 99, I'd still care about that sheep. And then Jesus, it's like he doesn't even miss a beat. He just goes right on. And it says this in verse uh, 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, forgive me. Or father, for, I'm sorry. Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now let me set this stage just a little bit. Because what Jesus is doing is he is doing shock treatment. He is trying right now to just get everybody kind of rattled up. Because what, what is essentially happening is this younger son, two sons, looks at his dad and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. But since you're not dead, how about if you just act like you're dead and give me what is supposed to be coming to me which is my part of the inheritance. Now, according to Jewish custom and tradition, the oldest child or the oldest boy would always get a double portion. So since there are two of them, 
they would split it into three parts. The older son would get two-thirds, younger son would get one-third. You'd have to do the math as you move up. If you got four children, then the oldest would get a double portion, so he would actually get two-fifths, the others would get one-fifth. That's how the divide would always take place. It was the custom, it was the whole concept of being blessed as the oldest son. I'm the youngest son and the oldest son, so I don't know what that does for me, but somehow in there it would work out. And the son is shocking because he is so, he is so uncaring about the father that he says, Dad, I really don't care about you anymore. All I want is your stuff. Now, you know the story of the prodigal. It says it this way. It says not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. He went off to a distant country where he squandered his wealth with wild living. Now, he doesn't get specific on what the wild living was. He just simply says he was living a wild life. You fill in the blanks, and most of us do a pretty good job of filling in the blanks. Then it says, after he had spent everything, there was, there was a severe famine in that entire country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out, I will go back to my father, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. Now we'll stop there just for a moment because when you see this son and you, if you've ever dealt with a prodigal, if you've been a prodigal, if you've ever seen a prodigal, if you've ever had a prodigal in your life, you know that every prodigal has to come to a, what I call a pig pen experience in life where they come to the end of their own resources, the end of their own strength. What they begin to realize is my being in charge of my own life is not working for me I need to go home. And it's a beautiful picture in this passage of how every single person has to come to a point of brokenness. Now, some people's brokenness comes quicker than others. Some people's pig pen is not near as deep or as stinky as other pig pens are. But he basically says, I need to go home to my father. And the picture of this, as Jesus illustrates it, is that these are the sinners in the audience, the lost things of Israel. And he begins to communicate that the heart of this young prodigal was shame. He was ashamed of himself. He was filled with shame. He was filled with regret. He was filled with remorse. And that's what a life like that will lead to. But then he comes to the father, and I love how everyone was probably sitting around at this time. I would imagine they're still stunned by the atrocity of the story. And as he begins to share the story, I think they're all waiting for what dad's response would be. They know what their response would be. And he says these words. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and his heart was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, 
and kissed him. Now, if you've been around very long, you'll know this is one of my very favorite passages and one of my very favorite words. It is the word kataphalizon. It means it's a present ongoing verb, which means what? Is that he kissed him and kissed him and kissed him and kissed him. The Amplified Version says that he kissed him fervently. And if you can imagine showing up and having someone kiss you over and over and over and over just because they're so excited to see you. That's the picture of this passage. And the son is almost like he says, hey dad, let me get to my speech. I've been practicing it now for the last little while. He says, um, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And dad interrupts him and says, but the father said to his servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Notice the response of the father for the lost thing being found is to do what? Celebrate. And he says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. If the youngest son's heart was one that was full of shame, the heart of the Father, illustrating our Heavenly Father, is one that is filled with compassion. And this is a radical statement to all of those who are listening. Whether you're part of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, whether you're part of the tax collectors and the sinners of the group, those who are considered far from God, those who are considered close to God, it is a radical picture of a God of radical grace and compassion. And it is the picture of a heavenly Father that is always watching, always loving, always longing, always willing to accept home, always willing to restore a person into right relationship with him. Even the imagery of the celebration is one of restoration. Um, you notice that he puts a robe on his son. Um, a robe is always a picture of honor, right? Um, uh, throughout the Old Testament, how many images do we see of individuals that are given a robe to show the honor of their position? Joseph was given a coat of many colors, a robe by his father. Um, I think even in the story of, of Esther, how a robe was used in order to indicate honor to an individual. He gives him a ring, a signet ring. It is the family authority. It is the ring that indicates. Take the ring, put it on a seal of wax. It indicates that this person has the official authority of the family. Sandals on his feet. It is the image that he has welcomed home. And oh, by the way, nowhere in this passage did it say, Dad says, go get the fatted calf, son. You need to take a bath. Come on in. No, he gives him the robe. And I'm thinking, oh, but he put him on top of a grimy individual and I, I I get a okay probably too much information here but I was a kid who grew up on a farm and I walked in the barnyard when I was a kid and we never wore shoes that's why we always had a hose 
that was outside to spray off so at least you could get a layer of the filth off before you went in the house. No indication of that here. God does not expect you to clean up before you come to him. God does not expect you to get things straightened out before you come to him. You come to a moment of desperation. You come to a moment of realizing that your way is not working. You come to the end of your strength. You come home. He takes care of the cleaning up later. He just wants you to know he's glad you're home. And if you're in Sunday school or you grew up in Sunday school, more than likely that's where the story ends. But Jesus had two audiences he was speaking to. You'll notice back in verse 1, 2, and 3, it says that he was speaking to the sinners and the tax collectors. Let's just call them those that society did not want. And it says that the Pharisees and the teachers began to mutter. He was telling the story for them. I mentioned angry birds earlier. Have you ever met angry Christians? Have you ever met an angry pastor that when he's preaching the great news of Jesus Christ, he makes you feel lousy about it? Some of you grew up in a tradition where you knew an angry nun or you knew an angry teacher or you had an angry school, a Sunday school teacher or you had an angry, you had someone who professed to love Jesus but they were angry all the time. And, and it wasn't so much about the relationship we could have with the Lord as much as it was how angry God is at us and how angry they are at us for not living up to what God would have us to live up to. And Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but somebody needs to remind them. And the older brother is just as important in this story as the younger one. And that's why I want to spend our remaining time because the older brother is the Pharisee. He is the teacher. He is the angry bird. Meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the field and when he came near the house and he heard the music and the dancing, so he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf. Now, can I, 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 I didn't spend any time on this in first hour, but I want to make sure you catch this. This was such an opulent meal. The fattened calf was, was the, the expression and the, the, the uh, eating a calf was a huge deal in that culture. Most meals didn't have meat, period, because meat was so expensive. The meat that you would have would be only when there were honored guests or for a special occasion. A fatted calf this, this translates to one of the biggest moments in the father's life. These are celebrations that are not done once a year. These are celebrations that are done once or twice in a lifetime. 
And so it's a huge deal to the father. He says, your brother has come, and, and uh, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered, father, he answered his father, look. Now I want you to see the difference here. Notice how he does not speak to his father with respect. The younger son, when he came back, he was so humbled that he looked at his father as part of the speech and he said, father. He used a term of respect. That's gone in this relationship. He looks at his father, never addresses him as father, simply looks at him and says, look. All of these years I have been slaving for you, and, you and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He is lost and he is found. And as Jesus is speaking to these, these angry believers, he's speaking to the Pharisees and the teachers who are more about rules and performance and regulation than about relationship, the story is just as much for them as it is for the others that are sitting here that are looking for a way home because both sons are prodigals. Both sons are are, have abandoned the father's heart. One abandoned the father's heart by leaving home. One abandoned the father's heart by staying home and just simply ignoring his dad's heart. But they are both far away from the Lord. And I learned some things about angry faith in this passage. The first one is that angry faith tends to be more about obligation than about love. It's all about obligation. Notice what it says in this passage, verse 29, I've been slaving for you for years. The idea is that I've been working. This is a drudgery. This is not fun. This is not something I celebrate. I am simply obligated. I'm obligated to go to church. I'm obligated to say the right things. I'm obligated not to swear. I'm obligated to, to give. I'm obligated to tell others about Jesus. I'm obligated. And this idea is that working in the Father's field is a heavy burden, not a joy. The second thing that I notice in this passage about angry faith is that angry faith is more about performance than relationship. Notice what he says in this passage, I have never disobeyed your orders. I have never disobeyed the rules because it's all about rules. And what's interesting, I want you to catch this because you might be thinking these brothers are completely different. They are exactly the same. They both believe that sonship is something that can be deserved. They both think that they're the grace, the, the heavenly relationship is about something that is deserved. The younger son blew it, right? He says, Father, I am no longer worthy. He thought you could be worthy to be called his son. And the older brothers thought the same thing. I've never broken the rule. I've never done anything wrong. This is about performance. If I can, and you know, something can happen in our faith. And I, I just find this to be such a challenge to me. I, I've been a believer now for a few years. 
I came into what I call my transformational relationship with Jesus Christ back in 1986. That's a few years ago. And I find that the longer a person is a Christian, the longer that they've walked with the Lord, it is very easy to move to obligation and performance. We know the right things to say. We know the right things to do. We know the right things we shouldn't get caught doing. Doesn't mean we don't do them. It just means we don't get caught doing it, right? We know what they are. And it's very easy for us to move from a place of grace into a place of performance and obligation. And what ticks us off about sinners is that they seem to be getting away with something that we wish we could get away with. We would never say it, but secretly what we're doing is we wish we could trade places with them because they're getting away with it. Number three, I find that angry faith is very joyless. We lose joy. We, 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 we've never enjoyed what we have. What we've worried about is what others have gotten away with or what we haven't had. Now, I want you to see this exchange. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in so his father came out and pleaded with him. But he answered, he answered his father and said, Look, all of these years I have been slaving for you and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, by the way, who mentions prostitutes? The father never mentioned prostitutes. Early in the story, you never hear about prostitutes. The angry brother is the one that brings up the details. I find that when we are angry people, we tend to spend more time trying to find out what was done than rather to bring people home. He says, but when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. My son, he says, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. I want you to see what he's saying. Go back to verse 12. Verse 12, it says, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. So he divided the property between who? Them. The older son already got his inheritance. When the dad divided the property, he divided, he gave a third to the son, the son went and squandered it. But he says, all that I have is yours. We live in a house. The house is yours. You're laboring in a field. The field is yours. You're out trying to produce a crop. The crop is yours. When the bounty comes in, the bounty is yours. Son, everything I have is yours. You didn't have to ask me for a goat. You own the goats. And you're so consumed with anger about destroying the pigs 
that you've not even embraced what you already have. Is there anybody tracking with me on this thing? Man, I found this challenging. I'm not saying we make light of sin. I'm not saying that we, I'm not saying that we celebrate those who are living away from the Lord. But I find that this challenges me because I'm so consumed with not getting the raw deal and I'm so consumed with making sure that person doesn't get a little bit more grace than I do that I don't celebrate the grace that I have. And it can become a very joyless face. And can I just tell you that if your walk with Christ is about obligation and your walk with Christ is about rules and your walk with Christ is, is joyless, you need to take a look at your walk. Because that is not what Christ ever indicated faith is. Which leads me to number four. Angry faith will always distance you from the Father. Notice, notice what he does in this passage. He will not call him Father. It's almost as if he's written his dad off because he's so mad. He will not acknowledge that that's his dad. And then he says, then he says, and when this son of yours, notice how he doesn't say, and when my brother comes home. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, how many of your parents, just raise your hand real quick. How many parents have ever been tempted to say, hey, you need to go talk to your son. You need to go talk to your, you need, you, you know, when, when Calvin would get in trouble, it was always Tammy's son. I just want you to know that. It was, it was never, you know, right? and we, it's funny, I kept using the word son in the first hour. It could be daughter's. You ever do that? Of course, you, of course you're not really disowning them, but it's kind of like, hey, I'm not taking credit for that. Looks at his dad and he says, hey dad, he says, uh, this is not my brother anymore. He's your son. And he refuses to join the celebration. What does that mean? There's no fellowship for him. You see, I always thought these two brothers were so different, and I realized they're exactly the same. They both were more interested in getting dad's things than getting dad. One did it by breaking the rules. One of them did it by following the rules. But they were more concerned with dad's possessions than they were with dad. Let me ask this question. Are you more concerned about heaven than you are about the Lord? Heaven is an incredible byproduct. But the Lord is the gift. Both sons thought that the relationship they had with their dad was all about performance. Both sons felt like they could deserve their dad and their dad's things. Both sons wanted control over their lives. Both were distant from their father's heart. In fact, what's interesting is both of them broke their dad's heart. A month and a half ago when I was prepping for this message, I wrote down one phrase, wrote it down on a piece of paper, 
and everything built off this one phrase. Here's what it is. It's one thing to lose a child who walks away. It's another thing to lose a child who stays at home but rejects your heart. I'm not sure which hurts more. And for both boys, the way home was a heart of repentance and a life of surrender. A sorrow for what had become of their life and a willingness to surrender and trust everything they were to their father. Did you ever notice how God doesn't seem to ever get angry at lost things? And normally we don't either. You don't get mad at a lost coin. You might be mad you lost it, but you don't get mad at the coin. I lose my keys all the time. I don't get mad at the keys. I may get mad, but I don't get mad at the keys. Why is it that we get so angry at lost things? They're lost. What would you expect of them? The Father celebrates when they're found. The Father rejoices when they're found. The Father doesn't waste time recounting all the failures. He says, let's get back to living in a future. And so if you're here today and if you're listening today and you are like that son who's filled with shame, come home. Come home. I promise the Father is always loving and always willing to accept you home. And if you're here today and you recognize that your relationship has been more patterned by an attitude of anger than of joy, then ask for forgiveness and come home. Because God wants your heart to be the same as His and to fellowship with Him. So Father, I apologize when I have been more angry about lostness than I am celebrating who I am in you. I've never found anger to be an attractive thing in my life. But joy and freedom and love and grace in my relationship with you, I believe will always attract others. Forgive me if my relationship has become more about performance than simply being in relationship with you. Forgive me when I've looked at more of what you can do for me than just simply being able to be with you. I want to come home. I want to come home. The old hymn of faith says, come home, come home. All who are weary, come home. Silently, tenderly, Jesus is calling. 
calling, oh sinner, come home, come home. I do that today, Lord. I surrender to you today. I embrace you today. I fellowship with you today. I come in to the celebration. I rejoice today. In Jesus' name. Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living.